Malik asks how I'm feeling today. Relatively well, I guess, I answer. Last week, he asked if I had anything that I wanted to get out of these sessions, personally. I mean, aside from staying out of jail for the trespassing charge I got when I broke into that deer blind cabin thing. I want to stop losing time, I said. We went on to discuss how these episodes upend everything in my life when they happen. I described a few of the events to him. He informed me that for the weeks we were court ordered to be together, that this might be too large of a goal. He went on to ask what my intentions were about finding a place to live. I just shrugged and answered, I I guess here in Marquette. He explained that if I stayed here, and got on to the state Medicaid program, that ongoing therapy could be a possibility. Let me ask you, he said, when you're in the hospital after these episodes, when you've got medication, a place to sleep, a schedule, some social interactions, Do you still experience these episodes? I thought for a while. Um, I'm not sure. But no, generally. I, I don't think I have them. Okay, so let's talk about that, he said. You were hospitalized after this last event. What was the hospital like? It takes Rita a few hours to get the discharge papers organized. I think she wants to see how I'll act without restraints. I know the drill and and I behave. I understand I may present as someone capable of doing damage. I'm a big guy, 6'4", about 250 pounds. My size, though, is not a good indicator for how I will act as a person. I'm the furthest thing from dangerous, but when I'm manic, my over-exuberance and energy, I'm sure it can come off as threatening. Marie Curie, who in the late 1800s as a woman, discovered the elements radium and polonium, She said, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. She made this observation before electric lighting was commonly available, let alone an electron microscope. Her notion on life relates directly to mental illness. We know more about the far reaches of space than we do about the inner workings of the mind. The doctor who oversaw my admission comes in to confirm that I'm medically stable to be released to the psych ward. He asks me again what month it is, who the president is, and what city I am in, which now I know. 
He scribbles his name at the bottom of some forms and utters the word, good luck, and then exits without looking up. A person in a blue polo shirt with transport specialist embroidered on the breast pocket shows up with a wheelchair. He asks, are you ready? I'm sure he's just talking about the simple ride up to the fifth floor, but I'm lost in thought about what's ahead of me. I get up off the ER bed, hold my gown closed, and sit in the wheelchair. Okay, my friend, looks like we're off to the fifth floor. A young nurse, dressed casually in street clothes, meets me and the transport specialist at the double doors to buzz us into the unit. Mechanisms within the door clunk and whirr, and the door swings wide, and the transport specialist wheels me through. Home sweet home, again. Books like Girl Interrupted or The Bell Jar depict mental health units that are stately, like, like old mansions, turned into nursing facilities. People who've not experienced a mental health unit may be surprised that most patients get their own room. It sounds a bit posh and has a tinge of elitism when described in those simple terms. The reality is a bit different. Modern BHUs or behavioral health units are housed in hospitals. Surfaces are built for sanitation. Staff generally sit behind large, shatterproof windows so they can observe as opposed to interact. Rooms have twin-sized beds with a four-inch urine-proof foam mattress wrapped in a vinyl cover. There's usually a desk without drawers and a screw to the floor. There's a fiberglass chair filled with sand so it's too heavy to throw. There's a bathroom without a shower curtain, polished metal for a mirror, and a stainless steel toilet like the ones you've seen in prison movies. The nurse tells me that my personal belongings I forfeited in the ER have been transferred to this floor. She asks if I need anything out of my bags. I just request some of my clothing. She says they'll be retrieved, washed, and delivered for me tomorrow. So, until then, I'm in my blue paper gown. They have to go through all the pockets, remove any shoelaces, take away hoodie sweatshirt strings, because all of that stuff can be used to hang yourself. They don't allow prescriptions or toiletries to be brought in from the outside either. So she hands me a plastic bag with deodorant, soap, a small tube of toothpaste, and a flimsiest toothbrush I have ever encountered. I doubt that it can be sharpened to the point where it could open a vein. She tells me that the prescriptions the ER tracked down from my last psychiatrist and doctor will be evaluated and that I should have refills by the morning. She goes over some more rules, has me sign some paperwork, ask if I have any questions, and then leaves. 
I'm alone in my room. I can't remember the last time I had a shower. So I enter the bathroom, turn on the shower, retrieve the soap, and undress. I stare down at my toes. My two big toenails are blue. They're dead, and I'm waiting for them to fall off. Walking without a break all those days, repeatedly jamming my toes into the front of my shoes, damaged the toenails. I don't think I broke any toes this time. So there's that. The bathroom begins to fill with steam, and I step into the shower, reverently, like a solitary baptism. And the water from the shower feels like heaven. I want to stay forever in its warmth as the debris and dirt washes away from my body. There's no shower curtain. And I can hear the nurse saying, it's for the patient's own safety. So I slowly fold down to the shower floor and let the water wash over me. I think about a quote I remember from Winston Churchill. To improve is to change, so to be perfect is to have changed often. I sit on the shower floor of the hospital and realize that nothing is changing in my life. That thought mauls my mind. Is this as good as it gets for me? Was Peggy Lee right? Is this all there is? My thoughts are interrupted by a nurse entering my room and announcing, safety check. I forgot about those. Every 15 minutes, staff needs to check that we haven't offed ourselves. I'm fine, I say from the floor of my shower. I'm fine. (laughs) Two words that nearly always exist in opposition to the truth. We have some medication for you when you're out of the shower. Okay, I say, as if it's completely normal to have a stranger standing in the bathroom doorway while I'm crouched naked on the bathroom floor. I'm hoping the medication they are speaking of is some sort of sedative. I want to sleep for a week. I'll be right out. When I was transported onto the floor, the hallways were pretty empty. Now, after my shower and getting dressed, there's a lineup of characters at the medicine window that would make the people of Walmart look like fashion models. I'm completely unaware of the time as I've been in a windowless ER bay without my phone, and now I'm standing here in a windowless hallway. It must be nearing evening time, because I'm pretty sure it's not lunchtime. The few windows I have seen reveal darkness. Must be after dinner. After dinner? (laughs) Shouldn't I be hungry? I assess the people in line in front of me. I must actively remind myself that, indeed, these are my peers. I have a degree in education. 
I minored in chemistry. How can it be that these people are my peers? It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and I feel like McMurphy taking in the people at the card table. But the past means nothing now. This is my present. I might have begun my trek in life with the privilege of being male and white and educated. But childhood trauma and adult mental illness are the true equalizers. They don't care who you are. Schizophrenics are perhaps most adjusted for this environment because no matter where they are, they are surrounded by the same voices that pull them away from normal conversations into a world of their own. The most annoying to interact with are those with manic behavior, like how I get. We're convinced of our own superiority. Anyone questioning our grandiose strategies are working against us. Rapid stream of consciousness drivel in our ears, the ears of the manic person, are poignant speeches to be hailed like the Gettysburg Address or the I Have a Dream speech. Depressive people aren't what you might think. Depression is the wrong word for it. Depression isn't a mood like, like feeling blue or sad, something that a new haircut will cure. Depression isn't a feeling at all. To be honest, it's the absence of feeling. It's like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel slowly fade out until there's a darkness, void of feeling, except for the one insipid feeling that no longer being here might be the most reasonable response to life's circumstances. The ones you want to avoid, though, are the sociopaths. This can be difficult, though, because they often present as normal. You can have a perfectly normal conversation about politics or other daily events with a sociopath, only to find out from someone else they're in here because they just tried to kill someone or because they slaughtered a bunch of pets. There's also a smattering of drunks and addicts coming off of benders. It is ugly to be around these folks. Someone with the shakes after a few days in the detox unit is not pleasant to be around. They're mean too. They're mean though because they're in pain. It usually takes a full week before they are tolerable. This is the remedy our broken healthcare system has created for the offcasts. Round them up into a collection of characters written for some dystopian version of the tales of Canterbury. As I'm considering the people ahead of me, a woman about six places in front of me with maroon, must-up hair starts a gentle, slow sob. The man in front of her, with a trim body, crew cut, and teeth eroded by meth, turns around with a glower. An obese man, almost near the front, who is sitting on the floor Indian style, leads to one side and allows a preposterously loud flatulence 
to reverberate from somewhere beneath the folds of his sweatpants. Manic people laugh, schizophrenics smirk. The depressed don't hear it, and the sociopaths plot his death. Whatever anyone is doing, they all settle down as someone with the name badge of Nurse Carol comes around the hallway. She provokes a hush and a sensation of motion from everyone. The people in front of me certainly don't exude happiness to have her walk by. Nurse Ratchet, I presume. I had been last in line until a woman with the proverbial flap, flap, flap of flip-flops walks up behind me. She dons an expensive, coiffed blonde haircut, reaching her chin. She's smiling a million-dollar smile, and I think to myself, Coke addict? Hello, she says. Hello, I say. How are you? She allows her bathrobe to fall open, showing me her small perky breasts, and answers, I don't know. You tell me. From down the hall, I hear the thunderous response from Nurse Carol. Kate, wrap it up. Rolling her eyes, Kate does as she's told and closes her bathrobe, and without any sign of embarrassment, looks at me as if nothing had just happened. She doesn't say anything, which is super creepy. So to break the awkward silence, I ask, the nurse said your name was Kate. Is, is that accurate? Accurate, she says and smiles. Okay, Mr. Thesaurus, yes, it's accurate. Catherine Klansman. Klansman, I ask. Yeah, she says, I know, idiotic name, but there you go. What's your name? Joe, I reply. Joe, she answers, seemingly not enthralled with my name. Joe what? Let's just go with Joe for now, if that's okay, I answer. Well, you're no fun, she responds. So what you in for? I'm nuts, like the rest of us in here, I say. Well, I'm not nuts, like the rest of you, she says. They released me from the drunk tank to here. I guess I may have mentioned a time or two that I wanted to kill myself. Huh. Do you want to kill yourself? Well, shit, she says. Of course I do. Doesn't everyone? Another nurse walks by, asking if anyone is interested in receiving a flu shot. <laughs> it dawns on me, the absurdity of asking a group of people who are suicidal or depressed if they want a frickin' flu shot. That's like handing out glasses of water to people on the Titanic. On the other side of the med window are three big black phones tethered by steel cables to the wall. A woman with short spiky black hair is cooing, I love you more, in a cutesy manner into one of the phones. What an annoying response to I love you. I love you more. Ugh. It almost belittles the phrase, unless, of course, it is true. Then it's just sad. I'd hate to be with someone who constantly reminds me 
that I love them less than they love me. The line moves slowly as the people in front of me consume sanity via Dixie cup. One patient seems to be droning on in a constant din at one of the med windows. From the tirade, she lists off nearly every symptom known to the world of psychiatry. Currently, she's complaining about a slightly elevated heart rate. She demands that she must call her doctor. The nurse at the med window expertly ignores her. There's a window on the opposite wall. I can see a parking lot full of cars coming and going. It's nearly 8 p.m. Maybe the activity below is a shift change. All these people driving in and out have have a purpose. Everyone on their way to or from work, picking up kids, going grocery shopping. Everyone on their way is a part of a life they've made for themselves. What's that like? I remember at one time having a purpose, having connections. It's a memory, but it's there. Across the hall from the med window is a TV room. It has a big window so the orderlies can do their safety checks without actually going into the room. There's an old guy who is impossibly thin. I think someone said his name is Kevin. Kate indicates that he's sobering up from a booze bender after his wife died. Old guy Kevin is sitting in the TV room watching Fox News. I can't hear what's being said on the TV, but I can see him becoming more and more irate. Kate also notices the guy and just giggles. He's hilarious, she says, with the concern of someone watching an anthill before she stomps on it. He finally leaves the TV room, muttering about some guy who has 20,000 dead fetuses in his basement. Oh my God, that's gross, I say. Yeah, Kate says, having already moved on to ogle someone else in line. This big guy rounds the corner as if he's headed to get in the med line. Oh Jesus, here comes Mr. Happy. The guy is nearly as tall as I am, but must outweigh me by a good 40, 50 pounds. He has one of those voices that carries annoyingly so. God damn fuck fuck state. The pilots are flying into the buildings and the circus is in town. He yells and then clasps his hands together in a loud clap and then just walks off down the hallway. I'm assuming that if he were to keep turning right, he'll be coming down the hallway again in a few minutes. The woman on the phone with her boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever is still cooing like a pigeon fat with breadcrumbs. I detest a cheerful mood. It means the person isn't trying hard enough. Kate, now bored with the entourage of souls at her disposal in this line, turns to me again. So, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Oh, shit, I answer. We are not going there. She hits me in the chest. Oh, come on. 
Let's have some fun. Here, I'll tell you the worst thing that I've ever done. One time, no, I say firmly, please stop. Seriously, I just got in here and I need the PG rated version of whatever conversation is spinning in your head right now. Uh, whatever, she replies. If it helps, I say, I'm a compulsive liar. Okay, she responds. That's at least interesting, if <laughs> you're not lying about it. No, I'm not. The worst part about my lying is that I'm not especially good at it. I mean, I'm good at the execution of a lie, but I'm awful at the follow through. Hmm, that's got to suck, she responded. There's a shitload of things you have to remember when you lie. She answers this as if she's thought about lying a lot. Myself, I never lie. My problem is that I have no filter. So not only do I not lie, I will kill you with my opinion at the drop of a hat, no matter how harsh it may sound. My words skewer a lot of innocent bystanders. Hmm. Good to know, I answer. I'm, uh, I'm pretty good at hurting people, too. I hurt people before realizing the damage I've done. I, I, I don't want to hurt them. I mean, I guess that doesn't really matter because I continue lying and I continue hurting. I hate it. I hate it. Hmm, she says. That's some serious shit you're talking about. Yeah, I don't keep friends for very long. <laughs> Isn't that funny? She answers. Neither do I. And I never lie. <laughs> yeah, I answer. I have literally exhausted the patience and concern of anyone misfortunate enough to fall into my sphere of toxic relationships. <laughs> she belts out another laugh. You sound like every boyfriend I have ever had. I arrive at the pill window for my Dixie cup of cure. Down the hatch.